0: coming up on this episode.
1: God puts a desire in your heart, but He has a timing and a plan for all of that stuff to take place. And it doesn't do you any good to try to circumvent that plan and put things on your own timing. But I would just tell myself to be more patient and just trust He has a perfect will and perfect timing, and you want to be a part of that, not try to beat it or make it up on your own.
0: You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. My name is Chris Kiefer, and today I am joined once again by Dr. Brett Gingold as a a repeat co host on the, the Pursuit of Purpose. He's an orthopedic surgeon here in Central Oregon. And he is back for kind of part two of the Ashanti Samuels story. Um, And I don't know if any of you listening remember back to episode 19, we interviewed Ashanti Samuels. He was a um, a young kid from Atlanta, Georgia, who grew up in the projects there and found a way out uh, to where he is now in Terrebonne, Oregon, uh, through rodeo. So... As an orthopedic surgeon, Brett volunteered in the local rodeos uh, here in Central Oregon and got to know a number of the rodeo um, stars that would come through and lived in the area. And I'll let him kind of get into that a little bit. But that's how he met Ashanti Samuels and Bobby Moat, who is the other person joining us today. So if you haven't listened to that first episode, you might want to go back to episode 19 to hear a little bit of Ashanti's story. Um, But today we're going to dive into Bobby's story. And Brett, um, appreciate you coming on to do this again. Um, So I'll let you uh, kind of give the background on Bobby and a little bit of how you got to know him and all that.
2: Well, Chris, thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to to be talking with you, and and more importantly uh, to be talking with Bobby, who uh, has been a friend of mine for probably eleven or twelve years. I first met Bobby. Uh, at the Sisters Rodeo in Sisters, Oregon, the biggest little rodeo in the world, and I was introduced to Bobby through a athletic trainer through the sports medicine uh, department uh, at the time, Justin Sports Medicine, named uh, Devin Dice, and uh, through Devin, I was able to meet Bobby and become uh, I would consider a good friend of his and his family, and uh, over the years we've known each other on both professional and Uh, more of a friendship basis. Uh, Bobby is a four-time world champion bareback rider. I would consider him the uh, Tom Brady of bareback riding based upon the accomplishments in his career and the longevity, uh, which is quite rare in his field. His career earnings have uh, topped $2.7 million, and he's qualified for the uh, um, NFR uh, finals the world Finals uh, 15 consecutive times. Currently, Bobby is residing in Llano, Texas with his uh, family. Uh, he continues to be involved in rodeo at multiple different levels. He also serves as the president of the WCRA and uh, trains performance horses and cutting horses for Reliance Ranches down in his area. And uh, as far as I know, he's still roping and uh, loves the outdoors and spending time with his family. I am uh, extremely excited to have Bobby here with us today, uh, not only to discuss his career and uh, the important things that he's done for Rodeo, but also uh, he is a crucial component to uh, telling the story of Ashante Samuels. Thank you for having me.
1: This, this should be fun. I've been looking forward to it.
2: Awesome. So, to give us just
0: kind of a, a little bit of a synopsis of your career, um, you like where you grew up. You're now in Texas, but that's a more recent move. So yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: We'll go chronological right from the beginning. (laughs) I was born in Portland, Oregon, and, uh, both of my parents trained and showed cutting horses. So I grew up on the weekends. Uh, we went to these, to these horse shows and we traveled a lot. Um, when I was nine, we moved over to Terrebonne and, uh, I, I went to elementary, finished elementary school there, and then and then it ended up in Redmond from there. And so, in school, and high school, and and that you know, like every kid, when you're 15 years old, you you're you're struggling, trying to figure out how you're going to fit in. And uh, I, I wasn't part of the I wasn't part of the jocks because I wasn't athletic or good at sports, and I really wasn't part of the the preppies cause I wasn't good at school and I wasn't part of, you know, like I was just outside of every group it seemed like. And so, you know, I, I identified with the, with Cowboys because that's kind of what I had grown up doing other than I, I wasn't really involved in rodeo. And so I just wanted to figure out a way to fit in. And so when I was 15, um, I found out about a practice pin that they had in, in Powell, butte and on Thursday nights for $8, you could go out there and you could get on whatever it was that you wanted to get on for $8 a head. Well, I had bought a, you know, second, third, fourth hand, probably at that point, bareback rigging from a, from a kid in the school cafeteria for $60, which <laughs> today they cost, you know, $800 for a new one. Mine was far from new, but regardless, it gave me a it gave me a, a way to get my foot in the door. Also, I talked my grandma into riding with me out to Powell Butte on Thursday night to go out to get on a bareback horse, and I was hooked. I didn't know what and I was doing. This is at age
0: at age fifteen. Yes, You'd sir. never ridden bareback before. You talked your grandma into going out to this uh, ranch out in Powell Butte. And this is the first encounter um, riding barebacks?
1: Yes, it was. Yeah. That was my first time. And then I started going to Central Oregon Pee Wee Rodeos. And uh, I wasn't good at it, but I liked it a lot. And, you know, then I started into high school rodeo when I was 16. And I didn't do very good at all. And I, but I just loved it. And I knew that I needed to keep trying because eventually I was gonna get better at it. And we would go, uh, there was a stock contractor in Terrebonne and so we would go down there and we'd get on practice horses and I practiced every chance I got. I started to get a little bit better and I started to go to some of the <clears throat> some of the amateur rodeos in the area and uh, started to do okay at that. I went to uh, a rodeo in Thai Valley and I had this horse that, that like, Ran from the buck and shoot straight across the arena and crashed into the fence, and like it was uh, railroad type posts and like wood rails, and he he crashed through the fence and then hung me up and dragged me down the fence and took out a couple sections of it with my body. And I I guess this isn't anything that I remember, but they said I was unconscious for like ten minutes and broke the, uh, my arm, bro- broke it right, right below the ball. And my dad happened to be in the area, and he watched me. And so this was one of the, one of the first, you know, times he'd watched me at a rodeo. And here, the ambulance hauls me off. Anyhow, so I heal up from that. And I decide, you know, b- by this time, I'm about, I'm 18. Or no, I'm still 17. I decide that that I if I'm going to make it as a bareback rider and rodeo that I need to that I need to be able to spend more time doing it and be more dedicated and so my junior year of high school I I drop out I just say I don't I don't need it um all the students get in my way and and nobody could talk any sense into me, not my teachers, not my parents, not anybody. I just made the decision and I went ahead and did it. And so my junior year, I stopped going to school and I spent more time working. And so for work, I would cut firewood and I built fence and I trained, you know, like I started Colts, trained young horses for people and did whatever I could do to make enough money so that I could pay my entry fees on the weekend because I wasn't good enough to win when I got there, I knew I needed to have the week to work to do it, and so that was kind of the way I rationalized things in my mind as crazy as it probably sounds now and so there was a <clears throat> there were two people who were really influential in in my life at the time, and one of them uh he lives in Tarbon still uh richard rollins he he is a Really interesting story, but he he had had a stock on a rodeo stock contracting company for quite a while and'd been around rodeo a lot and so to me, anybody who had any experience in rodeo, I just held him at the most high regard. I just thought that you know I want to know as much as I can know that he knows because he's been there, you know right, and so then another really good friend of mine. Uh, Johnny Hammock, he, he wrote saddle Bronx, but, uh, he and I are the same age also. And, and we were kind of running these parallel tracks. Well, his dad happened to be a bareback rider and, and, and a really good one, John Hammock. And, and so, um, John was the first, um, you know, real like pro instructor that I had. And so I started to get good whenever, you know, started to get better uh, whenever John Hannock started helping me with my bareback riding. And I just wanted to be just like him. He was a tough guy and he was just like somebody out of the old west a little bit. But one thing that John and Richard both, you know, really that I learned from them is is you've got to really work hard. And so, so that was kind of the environment that I was around at the, you know, especially at the time. And so it, it just made sense to me through listening to this guy sing about, you know, bareback riding and riding at the national finals and being a world champion and everything else. That's, that's what I've got playing in my head all the time. And then I'm around these guys who, you know, if you want something, you just go work for it and just go get it. And that's, you know, it just made the most sense to me. And so I did it. It's it's funny because when, when his son Johnny and I were like 16, 17, we started going to these amateur rodeos. John was in his 40s and had retired for quite a while from bareback riding, but decided that he was going to start riding again to uh, to to go along with us to the rodeos. And um but I really did learn the basic the the fundamentals that I used through my whole career riding bareback courses I learned from from John Hammock and then and so And so
0: one go ahead or one thing I'm curious about is the um I, I just am super intrigued by the the things that drive uh successful people or just kind of the fuel that allows you to pursue something as intently as you did. Um, I've One of the things that I've read is just the importance of surrounding yourself with like-minded people and or, um, you know, you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And it seems like, I don't know if you, how intentional this was at the time, but from what you're saying, it sounds like you knew that you wanted to be successful in rodeo, And you just were looking for anyone that had anything to do with rodeo that could get you further in that direction is, was that like a really concrete plan or it was just kind of, that's what you were drawn to. And that's what you sought.
1: Well, I don't know that I really, you know, sat down and, and drew up this plan, but I mean, if you wanted to be an astronaut, you were around some people who had maybe been to space. You'd want to hang out with them as much as possible and try to learn as much as you could. And, in my, in my mind, that's, that's about what it was like. I mean, it was just, it's something that I had put at such a, you know, put such great importance on being able to, you know, live that or accomplish that, that I was just adamant that I, and the other, and the other thing about that was, was, as I mentioned through all this time when I'm getting hurt, which didn't end there, but um, you know, I've constantly got people telling me, that you need to just quit doing this. You need to do find something else. You know, I mean, you're obviously not cut out for it because I am, you know, before I came around, the stereotypical bareback rider was about five foot seven, 155 pounds. And here I am, you know, at this time I'm about six feet tall, but probably 160 pounds. But I mean, I mean, I wore 28, 36 slim fit Wranglers. And uh, if anybody's ever worn those, I mean, that's, that's like wearing a, a, a pair of you know stovepipes. I mean, they're little bitty. And I mean, I, I was uncoordinated and gangly and accident prone and all of the above. And so you can imagine why people would have said, you know, you're not cut out for this. You need to find something else. And all it did was just make the chip on my shoulders grow. And I, was, I wasn't I was going to have somebody tell me that I couldn't do, you know, whatever it is that I wanted to do. And I felt like I got that at school. And I felt like it was just in my way of, of you know, accomplishing my dreams. And so I just took my own path, you know. As soon as I turned 18, I bought my permit, which is uh, – you know, it, it doesn't give you access to all of the rodeos, but it gives you access to some of them. And I still am not competitive at this point, but I know that being around the, the pros at these rodeos is getting you know, I'm going to learn something every time. And so I, I just keep on with this program where I'm busting my butt during the week, making as much money as I can, however I can working to go to these rodeos on the weekends. And I knew, you know, I would need between three and $500 a weekend for entry fees and traveling to go to these rodeos. And I would basically go and donate because I wasn't good enough to win. But every time I was there, I would, I would watch these guys, these pros, and I would ask questions and I would observe and try to learn as much as I could. And I, you know, at least I had a, at least I had a real measuring stick, you know, as to how how I was progressing or how I was doing, because if I could win at those rodeos, then I knew I could win anywhere. And so um that's what I continue to do. You know, and so also when I'm eighteen, I met, uh, met I met a girl named Kate McEwen who went to uh was still going to high school. She was sixteen at the time, and I met her and, uh, we, you know, started dating and just fell in love right off the bat. And, uh, Kate, who, uh, you know, married, <laughs> you know, finish the story, uh, jump, jump to the end and then back at the beginning, Kate, uh, her mom is a super hard worker and, and has done a tremendous job with her and her sister. And, and, uh, Kate always, even in, when I met her in high, you know, when she was in high school, still she's sixteen, and she worked at the, she worked at the car wash, and she worked, you know, at a at a vet um, as a vet tech, and she would do, she worked also at this uh, stuffed pizza that was there in Redmond. that's it's not there anymore, but and she'd work there at night, and so she always had two or three jobs. Well, then, whenever her and I start dating, I mean, she just she just basically locks arms with me and my dreams and, and is also, you know, trying to work and help, you know, me to make enough money so I can go to these rodeos on the weekends. And she would go with me when she could and, you know, root me on or help me drive or whatever. And, and um, I remember, you know, there were times when, when I needed to make more money and I would go out, we would go to the woods, would go out there like, Oh, just south of the pine, we cut we cut lodgepole pine poles, you know, for fence rails. And you could get uh, two dollars and fifty cents for a pole, for a twelve foot pole. And we would go out there and we'd cut about three hundred in a day. And we, yeah, and she'd go out there with me, and we'd cut them. And you got to cut them and limb them and drag them to the truck and load them on the truck, and then you got to go somewhere and sell them. And she'd help. She'd help me do that. She'd help me cut firewood. She helped me do whatever, because she she believed in the same thing that I believed in. And her mom, you know, didn't do anything to discourage that. Which you know, looking back now is is remarkable in itself, because most parents probably should keep their kid away from somebody like that. <laughs> so, but you know, she just she's never never doubted never doubted me never doubted her my dream which became her dream as well and so you know I can't say that I knew then that that's who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with but I sure thought so and turns out I you know I was right but um so so now it's now it's not just me anymore but it's with me and, and Kate and Kate's finishing high school. And, you know, she did go all the way. <laughs> and, uh, and then she went from there to, uh, um, she went to a massage therapy school and she got, um, she went through that whole process and, and, you know, but all the time we just haven't been able to spend much time apart. And so, um, as I've, started going to these PRCA rodeos. I realized again that I needed to surround myself with a better, a better crowd of people. And so I sought out uh, Clint Corey, who was uh, the 1991 world champion bareback rider. And I had been to a couple of his clinics. Um, He was originally, he was from Kennewick, Washington, and then he, he moved to Culver. And so When I found out he was moving to Culver, I'm like, this is just, this is, this is perfect. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go ask him if I can start to travel with him. And so in rodeo, in rodeo though, there, there's usually two or three or, or up to four guys who will be in the same event or same discipline that will go to rodeos together. And the term is that you travel together. And so, you know the idea is you're going to the same places, and so you can share expenses and share the you know driving and and all that, and then and and even more so than that, these traveling partners. I mean that's you, you learn a lot from them, and so there. It's an individual sport. You're not on a team, but at the same time, having um, the guys who you spend all this time with in the in the vehicle running up and down the road they they could make you or break you and and so so clint was um actually doing still really really good he was still in his prime and and i asked him if i could start to travel with him which was which was a big stretch um from where i probably was in my career but He was good enough to say, yeah, you you can go ahead and, and, and come with us. And so I just remember I would stay up, you know, every time he'd stay up late at night, driving from place to place, I would, I would just try to stay up with him, And I would just, I'm sure I just pestered the heck out of him because I'd asked all kinds of questions. And, and, you know, as, as the year went on traveling with him, I learned a lot and I, and I got where I was doing pretty darn good. And so, um you know i uh, here i am starting to starting to compete on some of the biggest stages against the best guys and and i'm showing up with one of the best guys and so i feel like i'm you know kind of part of the you know i i'm i'm getting closer to to reaching my dreams um when i and and i, and I forgot to mention this but when i when i turned 18 Richard Rollins, who I've mentioned earlier, he gave me a journal and for my 18th birthday, and he says, take this journal and write in it. You know, it, it doesn't matter really what you write in there, but, but every day or every couple of days, try to write something in it. And so at first, you know, I would, I would write, you know, just nonsensical stuff. And then, and then, um, at one point I wrote down my goals and, um, at the time, like I would, I read stuff like psycho cybernetics and, and, you know, was really into sports psychology because I thought it would help to give me the edge. Um, and so, you know, one of those sports psychology books, they talked about, they talked about, you know, writing down your goals and verbalizing it and everything. So, and so I did, and, uh, I didn't really give it much more thought after that, And but then, as as I went I began to start taking the steps that you know the necessary steps to reach those goals and and so traveling with Clint Corey was was a was a big one because it started to put me in the in the you know in the right in circles the with those people Yes yeah. yeah and so I began What to,
0: what were the goals that you wrote down do you remember?
1: Yeah, I do remember. Because I still have the book and I found it uh I found the book about six six years ago when I was cleaning my garage out and uh, I wrote that I wanted to, that I want to have over a dozen qualifications at NFR. I wanted to win more world championships than than anybody had ever wanted to be among the best bareback rider in history. Well, when I wrote this, I mean, I was the best bareback rider in the county. so it was a pretty tall order and, uh, but, but I had the guts to write it and, and I would look at it from time to time. And, and, you know, then I learned, you know, later to start to, you know, kind of stair step those, those goals and try to, you know, how am I going to get from here to there? And I began to set some more short term goals, some more obtainable goals. And I, you know, I, I, I accomplished, you know, largely, I accomplished what I wrote down. I didn't end up winning more world titles than anybody.
0: Really quick. So you you mentioned that Richard gave you this journal initially, right? Yes. And based, I think that's fascinating. So he essentially said, hey, you should write just, you know, journal when you can. But there wasn't too much other instruction other than, hey, it's it's a good idea to kind of put your thoughts on paper. And then you took it to... And we're doing your own research and that led you to get more intentional potentially, if I'm understanding you correctly. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that's, it's fascinating. The, um, from what Brett has told me about you and Brett, you can expand on this a little bit. You kind of developed a training regimen and your, um, goals or steps in that was very, unusual at the time for bareback riders is that am i saying that correctly brett
2: uh yes um being around several of these other athletes uh they have various different training technique and training regimens and what was most impressive about bobby is that when i first met him and saw him in a professional manner he was training more like almost like a crossfit athlete or an endurance athlete not so much as a a rodeo athlete, and I think the testament to his the length of his career, which is quite unusual in rough stock and bareback riding, is that he was so fit. And um, I, I would, I think Bobby would agree that that comes with a kind of a progressive training regimen, a healthy diet, and uh, be mentally mentally sharp and mentally tough.
0: And Bobby, what or what year is it when you are um, eighteen years old and? It um, seems like this is when most of this stuff is beginning to unfold in a bigger way. What year would that have been?
1: That would have been 94.
0: And when is the first time that
2: you and Brett crossed paths? What's that story? Well, that would be probably 2006, 2007. I, I'm pretty sure, Bobby, that Devin probably sent you into the office after some an injury.
1: Yeah, and I don't remember what the injury was. I'm
2: pretty sure it was your shoulder I think it was your shoulder oh yeah I, you know there's been so there's been so many injuries Bobby who who can remember <laughs> well
1: that's that's the funny thing about it and and you know every year it seemed like especially the last ten years of my career, I had something that could have been career ending i don't i don't know and, and, it, and it never you know it either happened at the right time of the year which which meant I either had enough money one where it it didn't keep me from making the NFR or it was early enough in the year where I could catch up or, or something. But, but I mean, I had some pretty serious stuff happen. And if it wasn't for, for guys like Brett that were willing to like, say open the surgery center on a Sunday to, to help, to help me so that I could, so that I could keep going that I wouldn't have had, all of the success that I had because because there were some there were some pretty crazy stuff that I that I dealt with that you know I wouldn't have been able to deal with on my own or not known how to. And so
2: yeah, Bobby, I was telling telling Chris that story about how we opened up the surgery center on the weekend and uh what we were specifically treating on that particular day was pubic symphysitis where you're having irritation of your pubic bone, something that for a bareback rider or saddle bronc rider can be devastating and significantly affect the way that you ride. And I was telling him that story that, uh, and I don't really think I talked to you much about this, that it was a procedure that I had really never really done very much or had a lot <laughs> of at, the time,
1: at the time you told me you hadn't actually done it before, but you said that you'd, you'd read up on it and I said, yeah, well, if there's I, if there's anybody that I want to do it, then it's you. So I'm just like, you're in charge. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. So for <laughs> a person, for a person like me to do that on a person like you, it's, uh, it can be quite unnerving. So, But anyways, I, I think it turned out pretty good. And um, you, had a, you had a good response from that particular injection, which is a pretty dicey deal to do in a very sensitive spot. And, uh, and I was telling Chris afterwards that, I don't know if you remember this, but later that morning, we just happened to, by chance, bump into each other at a Western store. I was, I was looking for a hat, and I'm not sure what you and Kate were shopping for. But I wanted to have a hat like you, and uh, I bought a a white a white straw western hat on that particular day yeah and then and then afterwards we went out to lunch
1: yeah I remember and that.
2: what I was what I was most most impressed is that we went to a brewery, went to a 10 barrel brewery and uh, you ordered a steak salad and uh, like an iced tea maybe yeah. and just for a rodeo star like you to order that i was I knew that you were special you know it wasn't like burger and fries and a beer. It was something healthy.
1: I always ate pretty healthy, but I was eating things that evidently my body didn't like. And so you feel so much better when you eat according to, I guess, what your body wants. So I learned early on that something that I, you know, was maybe wise beyond my years at the time. But if I if I set a goal and my goal was to be a world champion bareback rider that I would run every decision that I made through the filter of was that going, was that decision going to help me get closer to obtaining my goal? And just pretty simply put, if it was no, then I didn't do it. And so that, that really was a, what, you know, it it helped me to have the discipline that I needed to do, to do what I needed to do, whatever whatever it was at the time.
0: Like how granular did you take that philosophy?
1: Was like doing one more rep of an exercise going to get me closer or is quitting early going to help? Quitting early mm-hmm. wasn't going to help me get anywhere. So was going to the bar after or the beer stand after the rodeo with, with my buddies, was that going to help me get closer to – you know, where I wanted to go or, or not. I mean, the answer was always no. So it kept me out of trouble was, hmm. you know, the, the list goes on, but yeah, I mean, I think I took it to a pretty granular level. I was focused on one thing and you know that as, as you get a family and you know, kids and things, then, then your focus begins to separate a little bit. But, but my family I even always looked at it like we're on a team And I mean, they understood that if I couldn't do my job well, then the team suffered. And so, you know, um, they were they were always in support of me all all the way through. Um, But, you know, as I got better and I got more seasoned and experienced, I was able to, you know, balance my time, which, you know, became which became, you know, something that was a huge priority to me. Um, you know, you can't have your, your family already makes enough sacrifices as it is for, for somebody to pursue a career in this. And, and uh, you have to realize when, when enough's enough and be able to shut it off. But I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to shut something off when you, when you just kind of eat, sleep and breathe it that, that much. But I really believe that that's the kind of stuff that separates the people who just make the national finals a couple times or just do something well from the people who, you know, are, are excellent at something.
0: Oh, absolutely. And the thing that's interesting to me is, uh, I don't know, would you say that this, that your ability to do that is something that you are able to learn through in life or is it your, it's sort of the, the old argument, is it nature or nurture
1: I was, <clears throat> I just think that it was a, it was a blessing to me that I was, that I was too tall, but I was too unathletic, too uncoordinated. I didn't have anything handed to me. And I think that God put a desire in my heart and use, has used me since as, as an example of, you don't have to be you know, I mean, pe- people come from the most unsus unsuspecting unsuspe- um, backgrounds. You know, and just like we're going to talk about Ashante, that it doesn't matter where you grow up. It doesn't matter what you know, what you have or don't have. It's you know, it's the desires that you have in your heart and your willingness to to pursue those with whatever it takes. And I think that's you know that's if i sum it up that's that's it it's it's not because i'm some athletic you know super talented you know person that's just or 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 anything else it's just that god put this desire in my heart or i had a desire in my heart and and he helped me to you know find the right ingredients to to add to it to to make it work but you know I've if I look through my career I was always surrounded by the right people but it that was always it was always a result of a decision that I had to make that decision that I had to make was a result of just being goal-oriented and being disciplined enough to do what I needed to do to accomplish whatever goal i had set
0: and so i was looking at the years that you won the world title for bareback um 2002 was the first year correct yep and that would that would have put you at what age 26 is that right i think so um so Brett was telling me that the – what's the average retirement age? I'm assuming it's usually without choice. But at what age do most bareback riders start phasing out or not be really being able to be competitive on, on average? You
1: know, early 30s, they start to go away, I think. Um,
0: and the prime would be like mid to late 20s? Yeah, I mean, I most. think
1: I think most bareback riders' prime is probably – 26,
0: 28. Because it's interesting when you look at the years you won. 2002, you were 26. 2007, 31. 2009, you're 33. And then you went again in 2010 at age 34. That seems like, that, like you're probably one of the oldest people in the rodeo at the time. And you just win the national title um, in bareback. Why do you think that you were, well, first of all, what happened kind of between 26 and 31, you had a little like a five-year gap and then you win three in a matter of three years at, at an age where most people are retired.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So in 2003 I was at rodeo Houston and I had a horse and this horse takes off running and tries to jump over one of the pickup horses. And does a cartwheel on me and piles me up, and I felt a bunch of stuff crunch and pop in my neck and shoulders and stuff, and I didn't know what it was, but I was, I was hurting. Well, they took me to the emergency room in Houston, and if you don't have a bullet wound, a gunshot wound, then you're pretty low priority in that particular <laughs> ER, and so they're like, "Look, you're living, you got, you know, you don't have a broken neck." We're gonna send you back. Well, Rodeo Houston's one of the biggest rodeos of the year, and and this year I'm finally am making the finals. And so I'm I'm hanging around for a couple of days because my flight doesn't go home until after this rodeo is over. And so I'm kinda of hanging out and it looks like I'm gonna actually make the finals. I'm pretty sore, but I'm thinking if I make the finals, I gotta you know, I got a ride. I got to try to win here. And so the last day rolls around and I end up making the finals and I get on. Well, about the second jump, something just broke loose and my collarbone just snapped. And so evidently it was broken already, but they didn't catch it in the x-ray. And the second jump, this thing just pops loose and collarbone is trying to poke up through the skin, and, and I'm convinced still to this day that, um, that, that my neck had probably had some significant injury to it, didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, and didn't, you know, at that time, you know, 2003, we still didn't have, we didn't have, you know, really knowledgeable surgeons, and, doctors that would go to these rodeos and, you know, at some of the bigger rodeos, there was, there were people there to help you, but it wasn't like it is today. And they weren't proactive. And, and so, you know, I just go home and I heal up from this collarbone and the, that year I just struggled. I mean, I made the NFR and I don't know where I finished, but I mean, I was, I wasn't in the hunt for world title and I, I came back too early My neck hurt, I was weak, and things weren't working, and I couldn't figure out why. I made the NFR, and I just kind of got through it. It was just okay. And 2004 was a little bit more of the same. Like, you know, because if you don't have confidence in this sport, I mean, I don't – you're really in trouble. And I had just kind of lost my confidence. And I was riding good enough to make the NFR, but I wasn't riding good enough to do what I wanted to do. And so about 2005 really kind of lit a fire under me and and I made the decision that I was going to do whatever it took to, to get better. And so I felt like my riding style needed to change a little bit. And so I worked really hard for the next year to kind of reinvent the way I did it. And then I had some trouble with my elbow, like I mentioned, you know, had started getting a lot of elbow injections and stuff and I figured out how to how to manage that and um two thousand and six I came really close to winning a world title again but i knew I knew that I was on to something and I knew that I was you know like I was back and so then two thousand and seven was a really good year for me I did good in fact two thousand seven I won won rodeo Houston and that gave me a big boost that year but um then, you know, I just, like, like, there were certain types of horses that I struggled with, horses that are, you know, stronger, more, um, eliminator type horses that I always struggled with in the first part of my career. And then when I decided to kind of reinvent my riding style and and change things that I, I got better at, you know, one of my goals was I was gonna, you know, that, that the whole, the thing that was my kind of Achilles heel was riding strong horses it was going to be one of my, one of my strong suits and it actually did become that. But, um, so, I mean, that, that's kind of what happened in that time in between there.
0: Um, and again, Brett, you would have come in, or you guys would have crossed paths right before he won another championship in 2007. Is that right?
2: Yes. That's, um, that is about when Bobby and I started uh, on a professional level. And I think we met so frequently that it turned into a friendship. Uh, <laughs> because I, of I, all the injuries b- between Bobby and his family and friends, I, I think we became very close that way. Yeah, uh, yeah. He he fixed uh, it.
1: my my wife had a <laughs> horse fall on her and broke her ankle, and so he plated that. And then and then you know I was I was good for several referrals a year because I knew. I knew lots of people that were getting hurt.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I explained that to Chris, that essentially once you and I started uh, seeing each other professionally, that I think you became comfortable with the office, and then the floodgates were opened, and it was just, it seemed like endless referrals of ranchers and cowboys and rodeo people and just family and friends, and I still see them. I still, you know, I think... I have a wall of everyone's picture and people come in and just admire the wall and talk about who they know and who they've seen. And well, that's awesome. Bobby, that's what a,
0: was it about Brett that, um, I'm I'm sure you've met lots of surgeons in your life, but what was it about Brett's approach or strategy that made you kind of a bigger fan of his philosophy when it come to, when it came to, um, getting you back to where you wanted to be. And all well, that? two things.
1: One, one is that he's he's passionate about what he does then being a doctor's not his job it's it's, it's 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 what he is i mean he's that's that's what he's passionate about and you can you can just tell when somebody is I know only a handful of people in you know different professions that they don't do something to help people because you know they're just trying to get more billable hours or, you know, that's their job. Those are the guys you avoid like the plague, the guys who, the guys who are passionate about what they do. And then secondly, he, he gets it. Like he understands that this is how I feed my family. And saying that you just need to go home and take a break or you need to find another profession is, the quickest way to lose my business because I'll, I'll, I'll keep calling until I find somebody. And, you know, when you find somebody who's like that and understands, you know, he understands the position that these guys are in and, you know, waiting three weeks before you can get an appointment is unacceptable when you're in that position. And I'm sure, I'm sure that, you know, everybody's in a hurry, you know, when they, when they need to see him but I mean, he was just able to, to understand. And I mean, I could tell that he understood, you know, what I needed and why I needed it. And so, you know, not, not to the degree that he was unethical about, about trying to get me patched up and back on the road, because there were times when he told me, look, you really need to just, you really need to just take a break. And I would respect his opinion because I knew that he wasn't just giving me some canned answer or wasn't trying to um, push some, you know, he didn't have enough. His agenda was the same as my agenda. And that's, you know, that that's what made it all make sense to me. And that's why so many people trust him and, you know, put their confidence in in him.
2: That's mighty kind of you, Bobby. Appreciate that. I so Bobby, the two things I want to I was going to discuss with you. One is um, your faith and family, and the second is your transition from comp- competition, your competitive life. So getting to know you over the years, the one thing that you seem to put in front of competition and your career has been your uh, faith and your family, and it seems as though those two um concepts and those two um entities seem to drive you forward. Can you comment a little bit about how important they are and and what they've done to to shape your life and your motivation?
1: Well yeah, I mean <clears throat> the reason that I have been able to live the life that I've lived and do the you know the things that I've been able to do to this point, you know, is because God obviously has has put me in a position where that I can deliver whatever message he wants me to deliver to others. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home. We went to we went to church, you know, once or twice a week. I'm glad that you've been able to tell that, you know, that I have put my faith first. Because I'd be disappointed if you if you didn't think that, because that means I didn't do a very good job. Um, my family is, uh, they're the backbone to whatever I do, um, or have been able to do. And, you know, like I, like I spoke of earlier on, you know, I had one thing, one thing only that I wanted to accomplish. And, but when I, when I was fortunate enough to have, to start having kids and, you know, have an amazing wife that I have and start to build a family, you know, then that began to take on, you know, first priority. And... And I believe that you know the times of my life when my priorities were right and my my walk with Christ, my family, and then whatever you know my goals and rodeo were in that order, then things went really well, and there were times and perhaps in that stretch you know from two thousand two to two thousand and seven i i I had some issues with you know putting myself in my own wants and desires ahead of, you know, the priorities that, I, that I think that, you know, God probably had in mind for me. And, and I think that's probably why I wasn't more successful during that time. You know, you can, you can point it to injury or you can point it to, you know, what, you know, I think the underlying reason may have been. So, um, you know, he's a, he, he's a loving, just, just like all loving fathers, you know, we all have kids and, and we'll tell them based on right and wrong what we want them you know what what we think they should do if they don't listen then we have no choice but to stand back and just let them make a mistake and they're going to bump their head or they're going to fall down or they're going to get hurt and we know that that's probably the only way they're going to learn that lesson and you know i think our heavenly father is no different i think that he you know he 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 puts in us that you know we know the difference between right and wrong when we choose wrong then we're probably going to bump our head or get knocked down and but he loves us all the, all the same and is there waiting to help us back up and i mean i think that that pretty much sums that up
0: were you you said you were raised you were raised in a christian family um did was that a something that like your, your personal, um, prayer life and, and that your spiritual journey and everything, was that something that you and Kate were very, um, consistent on throughout your career? Or like you mentioned, there may be some spots of desolation or times where it was more difficult. Um, I don't know if this is projecting too much, but maybe getting conceited or something. Was that an issue that you're talking about in that period?
1: Yes. I mean, I think you pretty well hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think you can, it's easy to get, you know, you walk a, you walk a narrow road when you're, when you're trying that hard to be that competitive at something. And so what I mean by that is, you know, you you walk down this road and on, on, there's a ditch on each side. On one side is complacency and, you know, we know where that gets you. And, but, but on the other side is, you know, this, this, this kind of ultra criticism that, that it's like, you know, even your best isn't good enough. And and I, and I, I've been there too, where it's like, I may win the rodeo. Like I'm the highest score there and I'm walking back or people are congratulating me and I'm unhappy because I wasn't good enough because I, you know, I had, it was some fundamental goal I had that I wanted to accomplish that I didn't do during that ride or any little thing. I mean, I've been there before and, and when you do that, you're, you know, you're maybe you're winning and you're doing okay, but you're miserable to be around. Um, it's like your light's not shining. Right. And so you're so, you wake up in the morning and instead of instead of maybe spending some time to, 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 to read the word, to pray, to, you know, get your day set off straight. Maybe I'm just up and I'm headed to the gym or I'm doing, I'm doing me basically. And so I, I've done both and I've bounced back and forth, you know, not intentionally, but just in the pursuit of trying to, to be the best that I can be. You know, I, it's so easy to get your, to get your goals and your, your, your stuff in front of what really matters. And I'm just thankful that, Mm. you know, my heavenly father loves me enough to let me, to let me know when that's not right and correct me and, you know, correct me in ways, you know, for instance, you're not doing good, or you get, you know, you get sidetracked. And I mean, when you feel like you're separated from, from his presence, it's, there's no peace. It's no fun. And you can just keep beating your head against the wall as long as you want until you finally wise up and realize that you need to, you know, get your life back in order. So I've I've done both. I know I know I know what, what I would it, recommend, but I know that I haven't I haven't always done it either.
0: Right, right. What advice would you give to um if you could go back to say when you're uh, end of high school. So either late teens, early twenties, what advice knowing everything that you know now, the successes and failures and everything, what would you have told yourself if you could give yourself a piece of wisdom to hang on to?
1: I would say that, you know, like I mentioned, God puts a desire in your heart and, but he has a, he has a timing and a plan For all of that stuff to take place, and it's it doesn't do you any good to try to circumvent that plan and put things on your own timing, because from by the time I finally started to get good and start to figure things out, I could have graduated high school. I could have, um, you know, maybe started to get a college education that there's, there's a lot of things I could have done differently, but at the same time, I also wonder if I would have learned the stuff that I learned, you know, in that time. So, I mean, fact is you can't go back, but, but I would just tell myself to be more patient and just trust in, trust in that, you know, he has a perfect will and perfect timing and you just, you want to be a part of that, not, not try to beat it or make it up on your own.
0: Mm. That's good. I feel like that's for, that's something that I is very, um, it, it, it is very, um, what's the word relevant to the state of life that I'm in currently. Patience is like the one thing that I'm, I feel like I, for the longest time, I would say that I'm a patient person, but at the same time, I struggle with, um, feeling like I'm running out of time, even though I'm only 20, uh, 28, I guess right now. Um, but I feel like I am like, I have to hurry up and make it or, um, you know, have things figured out or be farther along than I am. And, uh, you're like one of, like the third or fourth person in consecutively on these episodes that say something about this virtue of patience that seems to be elusive for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you may maybe trying to tell you something.
2: So, Bobby, uh, if I I think your career spanned about twenty eight years. If you go back to when you started, I think you retired early in your forties, mm-hmm. which. It's somewhat unheard of in your sport. Uh, you competed at the highest level for the last decade of your career. How has the transition been to a relatively less competitive life? I think you're still roping competitively mm-hmm. uh, but you know you don't have the same, at least I don't believe it, the same grind of multiple rodeos per weekend no. and thousands of miles of traveling and the constant abuse of riding bucking horses what's the transition been like and how you've been how you been keeping busy i
1: stay really busy um so along the last couple years of my career we there were a group of athletes that looking back i kind of was in the lead of uh that that decided that rodeo as it was wasn't as good as it needed to be and rather than just bellyache about it we decided that we were going to do something about it and so we formed a an organization um got some funding and and while we were we were right and some of our some of our assumptions we were wrong on some others and it and it wasn't it wasn't successful in itself but um at any rate um uh, that that effort is morphed into Um, the latest effort which we're into you know we've completed our our first leg of our first year um but it's been several years in the in the the making it's world champions rodeo alliance and it is a we've developed some technology and we have an app that um that allows people to go from whatever rodeo event that they're at regardless of where it is or when it is, and count the outcome of of how they do at that particular event for points that would we keep track of um, to qualify them to a semifinals, which ultimately leads to a major. And so our last our last segment had our semifinals, which which uh, paid out five hundred thousand dollars in Guthrie, Oklahoma, and then it culminated to a major event that we had in Chicago that paid out a million dollars in one night. So it's been really interesting. There's been a lot um, to do with tech development and, um, and rodeo as well. And so I've really been spending a lot of time in some unchartered territory, but rodeos great as it is and, and deeply rooted in, in its tradition. There's, there's some things that could certainly stand to, you know, change with the times and you know some technology has made that you know an option but somebody's got to take the lead and it's expensive and so um we're constantly you know trying to break through these glass ceilings and and come up with new and innovative ways to do this and so um that's the that's the effort that i'm a part of as well as um this performance horse program that i'm fortunate enough to be a part of the thing about um, racehorses is after they're about three years old they're they've basically aged out of their careers and so we're doing something that hasn't really been done historically and so we're taking these horses and we're we're basically repurposing them we're we're training them to be performance horses uh, rope horses barrel horses and other things and and then we remarket them. So I spend about half my time on that and half my time in the office working on WCRA stuff. So we stay, stay plenty busy, but you know, the transition from retiring from being really good at something to moving into something that you're, you know, again, you're trying to learn. Um, it's sometimes it's frustrating, you know, and, and, and when you're you know, you're just used to, I got to a point where I was placing at 75% of the rodeos that I entered. Um, you get used to winning all the time. And then when you go into other things and you don't win all that often, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a difficult adjustment, but I think really staying busy helps quite a bit. You know, if, if I wasn't, really busy and I had too much time to think about it, then it'd probably be a little harder.
0: All right. So last couple of questions. Um, What does success look like to you personally today?
1: You know, to be known as a, a a good, a good father, a good husband, um, a hard worker, you know, to leave, leave the people who I've had contact with better, better than they were when I found them.
0: And um, has your definition of success changed over time?
1: Oh, certainly, you know, with with my focus shifting from, you know, originally all I wanted to do was be a cowboy, and then I wanted to be, a you know, a world champion bareback rider. And then, you know, and then as I had a family and that began to, you know, take the priority, then, you know, then you know, raising my family and, and being there for them, you know, became the priority right, so, right, as much as Sundays, it just seems like I'm just chasing whatever the outcome or goal is that I have, the more that there's just something set out beyond that again. And so, you know, I, I, I guess I get the feeling that, you know, some of the, some of this stuff is, you know, this self-imposed stresses that we put on ourselves are are not, you know, all it's cracked up to be. And and uh, so to to be, you know, to be known as somebody who was able to, you know, keep keep things in balance is 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 something in itself that's be, you know becoming more and more clear to me that that's that's an accomplishment in itself because this world is so busy and just getting you know ever increasingly more busy um everybody can understand that you know to be able to to keep things in balance and keep your your priorities in line would be a huge win
0: that's awesome what book recommendations i don't know if you have any favorite books but um yeah what books do you recommend
1: you know as far as the as far as the mental side of it goes you know mind gym is one that i read that I enjoyed another another book along those lines that I read quite a while ago that was good it was called the inner game of tennis oh yeah um I don't play tennis but I applied the kind of some of the mental principles um lately I read different kind of books uh, uh, one of the better books that I've read lately is a book called play bigger um I would definitely recommend that to anybody who's thinking about or in the middle of a startup um uh, another book that I'm reading right now is called Never Split the Difference, and it's uh, written by a, a longtime FBI hostage negotiator about negotiating, and it's it's really interesting. So I've uh, I've like you know I've enjoyed that. Um, one of the better spiritual books that uh, that I've read is is Battlefield of the Mind by Joyce Meyer.
0: Battlefield of the Mind. Yes. Um, yeah. The I so that's funny. The books you mentioned, Inner Game of Tennis, I have read. That's a really fascinating one. Just from the perspective of, um, uh, at least my the way I would summarize that book is talking about the importance of watching, and um, as a coach, trying to say um, less and just demonstrate more, and allow the person to observe that what their own body is doing. That's a fantastic book. And then Never Split Mm -hmm. the Difference, I have also read. That one is, uh, that was like the most entertaining sales book, I think, that is on the face of this earth, (laughs) just as far as negotiating goes and just being really engaged in these hostage stories that the author is retelling and then explaining, you know, how you can apply these different tactics to um, non-hostage situations. Um, But yeah, those are good. Yeah. And then last question, um, what is your favorite movie?
1: Mm, that's tough. You know, I go I go in spurts where I, I see a movie and I just love it and then um and then it's something else. But the, the movies that the movies that I really like are like um oh like there's a baseball movie called The Rookie. Um you know the oh there, there was a blind side. Um, I'm trying to think of the name, the Mark Wahlberg football movie where he's the, um, the true story about, uh, the Philadelphia bartender who tried, who walked on for the Philadelphia Eagles is like in his late 30s. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vince, Vince, Vince Papali. I can't think of the, the name of the movie, but it's a Disney movie, but it's, it's really good. Um, I don't know. I I like, I like movies like that. I like inspirational movies.
0: So, uh, we are going to wrap up this episode. Uh, we're going to cut this and we will be back on the next episode to talk about Ashanti Samuels. So thank you all for listening. And, um, hopefully you can tune into the next one and we'll have Brett and myself and Bobby talk about the meeting of Ashanti and all that happened there. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to the pursuit of purpose podcast, wisdom stories and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people